Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Rule the World, the ultimate power of storytelling. Storytelling is what connects us as humans, and for brands, it is no different. A well-told story can effectively position your brand in the minds and hearts of your audience, and can convert thoughts and feelings into results and revenue. On this show, we dive into the unique and recurring principles of world-class storytellers from every walk of life to help you level up your storytelling skills and knowledge to drive real, measurable results for you and your organization. Here's your host. Paul Furlong. Hello and welcome to Rule the World, the art and power of storytelling. I'm your host, Paul Furlong, and today is the day. My book, Rule the World, Master the Power of Storytelling to Inspire, Influence and Succeed is out today. You'll be able to get hold of a copy in all good bookshops, including Amazon and Kindle, Waterstones and WH Smiths in the UK, Barnes and Noble in the US, and all good bookshops throughout the rest of the world. I'd like to say a special thanks to my publisher, Fisher King Publishing, for going on this journey with me. It's been a blast. Anyway, without further ado, I'm excited to introduce today's guest to you. Today's guest is John Egan. John is an experienced political policy and communication strategist with over 20 years working for politicians in Westminster and Europe. He was also formerly a campaign strategist for the Labour Party, helping to deliver its key seat strategy for the successful 1997 general election campaign. He was also creative lead for Liverpool's successful bid to become European Capital of Culture in 2008. And more recently, John has also worked as a consultant, helping businesses, public bodies, cities, regions and think tanks develop successful positioning and influencing strategies. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Paul. I was wondering who you were talking about there because it um, <laughs> didn't sound like me, but yeah. That's, Thank you. Uh, Thank that's you. quite a CV. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like all CVs, it's um, it's only the best bits, isn't it? Well, why don't you take a minute or two to tell us a little bit more about yourself and a little bit more about what you do? Um, well, I, I think you, you you went a million miles away. I, I my my early my early working life was was very much in uh, immersed in politics um, and uh, I worked for the Labour Party um, initially 
um, looking after key seats in the northwest of England uh, in the run-up to the general election, which Labour lost in the, in the 1990s, early 1990s. Um, and then more successfully by 1998, I was working um, uh, again on the general election campaign, but also on a series of high-profile by-elections which were the kind of prelude and build up to the, the then um, the Tony Blair election victory in 1997. Um, and I, I became slightly disillusioned with the, the cynicism of politics and, and the, the mechanistic and slightly exploitative um, approach towards, towards political campaigning, which had been kind of imported from America. New Labour sort of brought the, um, the New Democrat kind of uh, playbook into British politics. And it was a very reductionist um, way of communicating with voters. Um, it was a very kind of clinical way of stratis stratifying voting demographics. And um, as Labour took power, it, it seemed that their, their policy making, their ideology and their values had now become subordinate to an electoral strategy and a communication strategy that was increasingly shallow. And, and mechanistic, and um, the, the, the kind of things that began to, to, to began to worry me was when I spoke at a, at a conference around democratic disengagement and, and why it was that um, you know fewer and fewer people in Britain were participating in democracy, and um, I was slightly disturbed that there were significant Labour politicians and, and strategists at the time who, who didn't find this particularly worrying. It kind of made life easier. Um, it made it easier to, to kind of communicate with a smaller number of people who were voting and to disregard the increasingly alienated uh, rump of voters who had switched off politics. And on one occasion, I remember, um, I will mention Peter Mandelson because he's you know, obviously somebody who's, who's um, extremely well known and associated with, with New Labour. Um, questioning Mandelson about the, um, the failure or the absence of an engagement strategy with the traditional working class labor voters. And um, almost with a kind of dismissive gesture of contempt, he sort of said, well, we don't need to communicate with these people because they've nowhere else to go. Um, and therefore, you know, our political conversations are, are very targeted, very intensive, but they're very limited to a small number of voters who have the highest propensity to switch and actually we're wasting our time talking to these people because, you know, we, we can just rely on them. It took 20 years, I think, for that, um, for, the, for the kind of comeback, which was probably Brexit and the collapse of the Red Wall. But ultimately, if you ignore people, they will find somewhere else to go. Um, so I, I left active politics. I left um, the Labour Party in the 19, just early, early 2000s. And then worked on a project um, for Liverpool University called the Democracy Commission, which looked at this engagement and looked at how we needed to change political structures and change political culture to try to, to re-engage people with democracy. Lovely project, two years, but again, of which I kind of burned my bridges with Labour and didn't have a job anymore. So I've been a bit of a hired gun since then, working for uh, clients, working for think tanks, um, trying to pass on the little I know about, about campaigning and um, how, to, how to engage people, how to listen to people, um, how to better understand um, the, the process of, of, of engagement. Um, and, and 
that's kind of where I've been. Um, I keep getting these kind of um, irresistible offers to come back into political campaigning because once you've done it, it is high adrenaline stuff. It, it is the most immediate, high-octane form of communication campaigning because um, you know you failed or you know you've succeeded when they count the votes. Uh, and, and therefore, it's, 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 a, it's a kind of, you know, make or bust approach or make or bust process. So at the moment, I'm, I'm um, helping to run the campaign for an independent mayoral candidate who is standing in Liverpool um, on an anti-corruption uh, platform because of the appalling, unprecedented, horrific scale of incompetence, dysfunctionality, uh, and potential criminal corruption that has plagued our city and has resulted in multiple arrests of people involved in local politics and local business. Yeah, that's certainly been interesting to watch unfold over the last has, couple yeah. of months, hasn't it? Yeah, um, yeah I, I imagine that the, the world that you've lived in, uh, particularly the campaigning side of things, uh, must be absolutely fascinating. I mean, I, I watch on like the West Wing and Veep and House of Cards and stuff like that, and it does look absolutely fascinating. Is there anything like that? Um, you know what? I don't watch it because it's the last thing I want to do. Is is, is kind of um, uh, you know OD on 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 what you do during the day by watching it. You know, in in your evenings and free time. I, I think I think it probably is. I think American politics is is, is something distinct and, and different. Um, it, it is hyper and and much more intense, and I think it's something we're going to come back to because I think American politics has been kind of smarter when it comes to understanding the power of storytelling and understanding the the deeper emotional motivations that are pivotal in um, understanding how people vote, why people vote, and which way they're likely to vote. But I. I a lot of it's really boring, Paul, you know. A lot of it is very, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm literally going out tonight to deliver pieces of paper and stick them through people's letterboxes. You know, today we've been, we've been, we've been, you know, trying to deal with the fine-tuning of syntax for, for, um, for Facebook advertising. Um, it, 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 a lot of it is mechanics. There's a creative bit at the beginning, and then from then on, it's, it's, it's just humdrum, to be honest. Okay, so let's focus on the creative bit rather than yeah. that posting with paper through letterboxes. So tell me then, you mentioned the word storytelling. Why is storytelling important in the political world? Um, it's important because it, 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 it's the way in which people, I think, um, express meaning. It's the way in which people um, make sense of their life. It's the way in which messages stick. Um, and I think for a very, very long time, um, political campaigners just didn't get that. Political campaigners was 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 just sophisticated sloganizing, or it was um, based on assumptions that people voted out of you know rational self interest, um, and, and therefore it was finding ways to to buy or to persuade or to or to, or to you know to, to to kind of garner support by um, appealing to what you saw as people's uh, material self interest. And I think it was it was only um, probably in the last 20 years. Well, actually, no, it's wrong. I, I did a piece of work for the Equality Trust a few years ago where we were looking at why is it that um, social equality, social inequality um, is, is no longer such an important issue in electoral campaigning in Britain. And we, we went all the way back to 1945 and we looked at the 
the way that the Labour Party had won that election, and we tried to work out where did Labour win that election, how did Labour kind of set the um, the narrative for that election, and you know win that extraordinary landslide. And one of the things I did was I found a quotation from a film. Uh, and I asked the audience, could they tell me who said this? And they all thought it was something that had been said by Clemens Attlee, the then Labour leader, and Iron Bevan, who was the great kind of orator and mouthpiece for the like, kind of Labour's post-war government. In fact, it came from a, a rather crappy 1940s propaganda film that was made during the Second World War. But those films that encapsulated the sort of vision, the notion of solidarity and, and, and uh, inter- interdependence um, that, that kind of, you know, inculcated those values in people that were kind of communicated through what was almost like the, um, the equivalent of the kind of fireside for the kind of hunter-gatherer sort of communities, that the, the cinema had become that at that point. They were far more powerful, I think, than anything that was, that was delivered through political speech-making in that election. And again, I think if you look at America at the time of the New Deal, it was probably films like, you know, a handful, um, Grapes of Wrath and uh, even um, having a moment here, a Wonderful Life that, that, that told through, through narrative that, that sort of um, solidified and, and, and made tangible the values of, of Roosevelt's New Deal as something that was profoundly American and profoundly wholesome and that people could, could buy into and be persuaded by and could, could, could you know, see as being essentially a shared value. And I think it's that notion of how do, how do we communicate shared values? And I don't think you do that by sloganizing. I don't think you do that by delivering political lectures. I think you've got to demonstrate to people that you have values, and then you've got to find the right language, the right visual language to communicate those values in a way that people can understand and feel a sense of identification and that we're on the same page. We're talking the same language. We're the same. And politicians are really bad at being the same. They, they, their entire raison d'etre is to be different, to be exceptional, to be superior, to be more uh, all-knowing and... Um, they find it quite difficult, I think, to actually communicate with people um, in, in a way that kind of involves them having to give up that, that, that privilege. So what element of the story do you think it is that influences the, the voting behaviour or the decision making? Because there's, there's so many elements to our story, isn't there? So what is it about storytelling within that that, in, that, that causes that influential um, that, that influence for the voting? Um, well, I, I think the less, the, the less fiction or the story, I, th- I think that there's, there's got to be an, an element of recognition. There's got to be um, a, a, a sense of authenticity about, about the story. So it's got to be something that I think um, resonates with the way people feel at that, at that point, the way that they see the world at that point. You've got to start out by by doing a lot of talk, about a lot of listening, I think, to understand where people are. We were doing a piece of work um, just before Brexit. No, actually, it was just after the Brexit vote and just before the um, the Tory victory and the kind of collapse of what was known as Labour's Red War. Um, and it was in the mining constituencies in the northeast of England. 
and the um, it was to do with a devolution proposal that is you know decentralizing more 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 decision making being delegated down to the locality down to the northeast as a, as a region as opposed to decisions being taken in London and I did a series of focus groups with um, communities in mining villages in, in County Durham and um, a series of face-to-face -face interviews with people, stakeholders and businesses. But the focus groups, they were really fascinating because I, I, I was surprised and, and deeply depressed by the extent to which the entire region is, is still suffering a form of collective bereavement that the, the, their sense of who they are was defined by an industry that's no longer there. It's been wiped away. There's literally no physical evidence left that this is a mining community. And yet the mining value, the values of that, of that community are still predicated on the history, the culture and the practices of, of coal mining. So the sense that your life literally depended on the guy behind you. Um, because you never knew what might happen in, in, in a mining environment, that that sort of sense of solidarity and mutual dependence was so fundamental to every single, you know, all their values. Every conversation you had with them, it was rooted in, and the metaphors and, and the um, examples just kept coming in, in those conversations. Um, and that had been stripped away. It no longer had foundations. And as a consequence, um, I wasn't surprised that 12 months later, um, all of those constituencies finally gave up on the Labour Party because going back to the Peter Mandelson quote, Labour had stopped talking to them. And Labour had lost its common language. It had lost that shared vernacular. It had lost its ability to frame and to understand the values and the life experiences of those people. And, um, it wasn't able to tell stories. It wasn't able to tell stories in the way that the Brexit campaign told stories. You know, this was a this was a a, a powerful, visceral, in my from my perspective, an entirely false narrative. But it got under the skin of people who felt that everything they had had gone, everything that they believed in had been sort of discredited, everything that they um, valued had been kind of stripped away and this sense of of, of bereavement the sense of disenfranchised um disinheritance i think is probably the best word was something that i think the right in british politics has been much much better at uh, exploiting than the left the right tells stories the left delivers lectures and sermons and you know it, it's it's been an uneven contest in british politics for the last since thatcher and she was brilliant you know, she made the economy intelligible by telling anecdotes about housekeeping. Um, you know, she made her policies around crime intelligible by telling stories about, you know, about, you know largely mythical uh, incidents and events that allegedly happened. They were able to exploit concerns over immigration. They were able to exploit uh, concerns over kind of what, what they described as loony leftism with anecdotes, with stories, most of which were entirely fictitious. But... You know, they were effective. And the left has been hopeless at this. It's, 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 it's overly intellectual. Um, it's overly cerebral. It's overly rationalist, rational. Uh, and it's been, it's been found wanting. And still to this day, it's found wanting. You know, Boris Johnson is, is not a great prime minister. He's not a, a, a powerful and convincing uh, statesman. 
but I think he's still like 15 or 16 points ahead of Labour in the opinion polls, which is which is startling. But I don't see any way in which Keir Starmer is going to, going to claw back from, from, you know, in the near future. So that comes down to... Sorry, I probably haven't answered your question then about what are the components. I think the components are the ability to talk to people and for them to hear themselves, to be able to kind of recognise... The, the, the language, the tone of voice, the values and those touch points that actually they can identify with as being things that they know or possibly more importantly, things that they feel and the ability to articulate that and to present that in, a, in, in the form of a story is far more powerful than it would be, for example, in, 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 a, in the form of a, um, a political manifesto or a slogan. Just to give an example from, from Stephen who I'm working with at the moment, he found it really hard at the beginning of the campaign because he's not a politician. So he was he was in hustings meetings or events. These are events where all the candidates, you know, are on a platform or a Zoom platform and they, and they, they have to fire questions from generally a kind of very rarefied, very unrepresentative group of people who are just, you know, who've got strong political leanings one way or another. And he was feeling that he had to kind of try and mimic the politicians and try and learn their language in order to be um, to be effective. So the first couple of ones, he wasn't doing brilliantly because he was trying to kind of, you know, play the game according to the rules of the, of the, of the politicians he was he's, he's contesting um, the, the, the election with. Um, a week or so later, he's doing a one-to-one -one interview with a, a Guardian journalist called Maya Wolf Robinson, who's a very good, very good um, investigative, not investigative journalist, features writer. And she's asking him about his life, and she's asking about um, what he, uh, what he's learned from his day, his experience uh, as um, somebody who set up and has run a children's charity for forty-five years. And he told a story. And the story was, well, when I set this up, we're working with kids from some of the most disadvantaged communities in Liverpool. They're people who've, families who've never been away. They've never had a holiday. They're living in the worst neighbourhoods with the worst housing, with the worst forms of environmental degradation, with the worst prospects for employment and getting out of that environment. So more than anything, what I wanted to do was show people difference. So the first thing we do is we take them away. We take them to Scotland. We take them out on a, you know, on a, on a, a trip to the countryside. We take them to, uh, to Wales. We take them on you know, education assignments. We've got to show them different. We've got to show them better. And I said, that's a perfect story for your candidacy. You've got to show the city better because the city is mired in the same kind of narrow, um, you know, first, um, this is what I'm looking for. It's, 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 its ambitions have been stunted by low expectations from its political leadership, low expectations in terms of its, its status compared to other cities. So Stephen is trying to show difference and trying to show better. But that story he told about how he's, you know, started his professional life became the kind of key to give him the confidence to start using his own life experiences to make his political message tangible to people. And over the last few weeks, I think every time he's done an interview, every time he's done a hosting meeting, he's been really, really powerful. And he's told a succession of stories, all of which really um, validate his, 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 
his position, validate his candidacy in, in terms of a story that people can kind of understand and make sense because it sounds true. It's authentic. It's human. It's personal. It's subjective. It's not made up. So another, an, another story really is about um, politicians have been saying to him, yeah, what's your policy on this? What are you going to do about that? What? And, and they're showing all the minutiae, all the kind of the, the details around. And he said, look, I don't know. I honestly don't know. You know what? Because I'm not a politician. I don't pretend to have all the answers. I'm not coming here promising to change everything you know, overnight. I think what people now want is humility and honesty. When I started my charity, I didn't know how to do accounts. I didn't know how to do marketing. I didn't know how to do this. But all the way through there, I've asked people. I've learned as I've gone on. But first and foremost, I've gone to people who know, people I respect, and learning and being humble and being prepared to listen and being prepared to learn are the attributes that a mayor needs in a city. You know, if there was somebody out there that had all the answers, that had those kind of superhuman qualities, I think we have to look at it with profound suspicion, you know, on day one. So I think that he's, 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 his candidacy has been massively um, enhanced over recent weeks simply because he's able to tell people stories that are about his life, that convey qualities of his personality and aspects of his experience that people think sound positive, relevant, attractive, and, and worthy of supporting. That's some really good examples there for, from, from that, that mayoral campaign and some really terrible examples you've given us as well. Um, so what common mistakes do you think, other than the ones you've mentioned, that people make when, when telling stories in, in politics, other than not being authentic? Well, I, I, th- I think the most spectacular one is, of course, like Biden, who just felt he could, he could tell a Neil Kinnock story just simply by... Um, changing the name Kinnock to Biden, and this is this is this is you know it nearly killed it, it nearly destroyed his political career. Um, I think the the <laughs> um, it's not a political campaign, but when we were working um, for the Liverpool's bid to become capital of culture, um, the Liverpool wasn't doing particularly well. The campaign really um, was 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 premised on on um you know because your, your your listeners might not remember the boys boys of the black stuff um seminal tv program of the 1980s but there was a character in it who was desperate hadn't worked for a long time was looking for work and he was reduced to the pot to the to the, to the point where he would just like randomly approach strangers on the street and say give us a job which is you know give us a job and the campaign for Liverpool's capital of culture was gives us a capital of culture. You know, we're a desperate city. We've got a shit economy. We've had a bit of a hard time in recent decades. You know, give us a break. You know, fuck's sake, pardon my language. Sorry, I shouldn't say. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, you know, using the using the the, the vernacular. Um, you know, just 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 give us it. We don't need to run an argument here. We obviously deserve it because we need it more than other places. This, this, this. This argument was, was going nowhere. You know, this, this was a decision being made by government. It was a decision being made by a panel of cultural experts and advisors. And um, we, had to, we, we had to kind of um, completely reframe the campaign by understanding the, the psyche of the people making the decision, the criteria, 
and the need to be able to tell a story, the need to be able to tell a story about a city that was that was in a journey, that was here and wanted to be there, and why this process was critically important to enabling the city to make that transformational change. And we had to illustrate it with, you know, tangibles. And eventually all the politicians kind of learned their lines. They, 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 they literally read the scripts. They, they read the FAQs. They absorbed the kind of the, the crib sheets to the point where they were word perfect, but they were acting. Yeah. They, they, they simply were going through the, the motions of saying what they had to say in order to get what they wanted. They may as well have been saying, this is the capital of culture because essentially the mentality and the psychology was the same. They were telling a story, but actually they were just, they were just rabbits. They were just you know, parroting the, the, the words without believing in them. So, so when they won, they thought, well, that was good. That script was quite useful. We don't need it now. Put it back in the bin. And it was, they just didn't use it. They didn't use the opportunity. They forgot why they had to, why they won it. They forgot what it meant. They forgot what they promised to do. And they took it completely out of the context of the narrative, um, which was about using it to make fundamental, lasting change. If they had made fundamental uh, and you know and, and lasting change, we wouldn't be where we are today. We wouldn't be in a situation where we've got a discredited, potentially criminally corrupt local authority with individuals being investigated for uh, corruption, bribery, and witness intimidation. Um, it, it, it didn't change anything. So people and politicians can tell stories, but they get found out if they simply see that as a means to an end. There has to be a component of truth. There has to be a depth, authenticity, and reality to what they're saying. They've got to believe it. And my disillusionment with politics is, I've worked with politicians at Westminster, I've worked with politicians at the, you know, uh, senior politicians within the Labour Party, politicians in, in, in Europe as well. And this idea that they all mean well, they, they all have the highest possible motivation, but they you know, perhaps um, you know, disagree over means, but they're all united on the same page as far as, as, far as ends. <sighs> I wish that was true, but I think in most instances, the means in the end become the same thing. It, it's about power. It's about winning power. It's about staying in power. And it's about using power for self-advantage, whether it's individual self-advantage or the self-advantage of the party. And we're seeing that today in, in, in the way that the political establishment in Liverpool just doesn't add up, just doesn't own up, won't fess up to what's happened. Because that would require an extraordinary act of contrition. It would require... Uh, a depth of honesty and humility that is incompatible with the facade of politics. I'm probably not giving you the answers you want, Paul, but... Oh, this, is, this is brilliant. It's, it's absolutely fascinating what you're saying. Um, and I think it's very true that you can't be... You can't be saying one thing and, and actually meaning a completely different thing deep down. People will see through that. If yeah, not they will. And, and I think people have seen through it. I think, you know... Reading today, Cornish fishermen are saying, you know, we, we were conned on Brexit. Um, you know, Scottish fish fishermen, Scottish farmers were saying we were conned. Um, you know, there, there, was, there are some enormously talented um, communicators, some enormously talented manipulators of, of, of public opinion and public perception. 
who, who now work for politicians, who work for political causes and campaigns, who are able to kind of mine deep into the psyche of, of voters, psyche of, um, of communities, to understand them, and then they can reframe their political message in a way that seems to, to make that connection. But it's it's all, again, this, this, this dark art of manipulation, this dark art of, of um, you know, misdirection and, and exploitation, which is so endemic and, and, and deeply rooted in our political process. And um, I think partly in, in Britain, I think I think one of the things that we, we, we really need is to kind of change change the voting system to enable new political formations and, and independence to have a level playing field. So that you know, politics can be cleansed. Politics can be refreshed by people who are not part of powerful establishments and, and cliques and lobbies, who are so dominant and have such a monopoly control over the levers and mechanisms that it's extremely hard to to break that stranglehold that they have and to uh, empower other people to, to to be active and to be effective in our democracy. In our, in our previous series of the podcast, we were talking to uh, Professor Uri Hassan from Princeton University. Uh, yeah. he, he was saying a, a similar thing to you about how storytelling can be so powerful, um, but some people, as you say, use, use it as a dark art of manipulation. And, and when, you, when you become so good at storytelling, you do have a responsibility to use it well and yeah. to use it for good. Um, and sadly, there are people who have become so good at using it, they just use it for, for the wrong means and for their own, own power. Um, and it's, it's a shame to, to see that used in those ways. You know, I think one of, the, one, of the, one of the questions that you, you flagged up earlier is about, you know, what, 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 what books or what sources um, kind of um, helped you to sort of understand the power of storytelling. It's, it's a book made to stick. I can't remember the authors of two American brothers, wasn't there? One of whom has had a, an advertising background. I think the other one had an academic kind of uh, linguistics or semiology background. It's quite an interesting, you know, difference of, of, of approach. But um, and there's some great case studies in there about, about businesses that have, um, you know, were able to kind of um, succeed by having values and were able to crystallize those values in, in powerful and authentic stories and, and narratives around the, uh, what they believed in. And they were able to kind of demonstrate the authenticity of that, of that story through, through what they did, through their actions. And those, those values were, 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 clearly, um, were clearly, you know, were being lived. But I think that book was so, so powerful and, and so influential that you immediately saw a whole series of fraudulent <laughs> um, attempts to, to kind of just borrow those techniques. Uh, and you see it, you know, you see it across the world, don't you? You, you? you see how advertising for brands that talk about values, I mean, the notion of brand and value, it's an oxymoron to me. Brands don't have value. Brands are abstractions. An abstraction can't have value. It's not a human, it's not a human personality. It's a concoction of some kind, you know? It's an abstraction. It's, it's a facade behind which exists a, a, a ruthless business imperative. But you see how, you know, even some of the biggest consumer brands are, are now using kind of cultural strategy. They're now using 
uh, the power of stories to try to inculcate themselves into the psyche of people by establishing some completely bogus uh, emotional connection. And it's probably very powerful. It's probably very, it's probably very, uh, it's probably very good. So, you know, brands like McDonald's are trying to pass themselves off as if they were innocent, you know, um, and that's, as an example, it, it's, it's it's clearly there isn't an equivalence of values there. There there, there isn't a there isn't a, a business model that's shared between between the, you know those polar opposites within within that within that industry, but yet the 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 the, the ruthless corporate global brands now realise that in order to survive they have got to establish some form of um, connection with demographics who are deserting them in favour of alternatives that appear to be more authentic, that appear to have real value and can tell real stories that, uh, you know, that validate those claims. So it's, it's depressing in a way, isn't it? The success of authenticity really breeds a more subtle, more sophisticated form of deception and, and exploitation. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah and um, there's a book called Love Marks by uh, Ken Roberts. Who's the CEO of Sachi and Sachi, and he he talked about this as well in a lot of detail about how brands don't um, cause any kind of loyalty. Mm. They might you might be you might like the brand that you use to clean your clothes or or wash your dishes or whatever, but there's no loyalty to them. If a Beton came out, you would go with that one. Um, yeah. But a fad, you're, you're absolutely in love with the fad, um, but as soon as it disappears, you'll fall in love with another fad. But there's no brand behind it, so there's no loyalty yeah. to it. A love mark is kind of the combination of, of both of them. Um, and it's about elevating brand beyond brand. Um, but again, if, if you do that without authenticity and you do it in a in a cynical kind of way, then um, it's just elevating that cynicism to a new yeah. level. And yeah, it, it, it is rather depressing when it's not done for the right reasons. And as, as you've talked about already in politics, this is... If you haven't got somebody who's who's got that authenticity and you haven't got that person who is doing it for the right reasons, then it's going to be far too easy for someone with with these skills, um, with the right spin doctors behind them, and, and all of all of those um, elements to to take advantage. And I think you've seen that globally. I think I think the um, I can't remember the guy who wrote the book, is Indian um, writer, cultural cultural commentator, um, Age of Anger, but he kind of you know, he, he 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 tries to pull out the common threads between Modi, Trump, um, Bolsonaro, and the, the Erdogan, Putin, and you know the the it is this kind of ability to mythologize, to to tell stories on on the grand scale that 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 you know speak to absence and loss and grief for people who who have had you know had their their, their, their sense of identity eroded by um, by modernity by consumerism by uh, manipulation um, who 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 see this facsimile of, of authenticity um, and yearn for it and you know these, these arch manipulators, who trade not in ideology, but almost all of them trade in in, in the, the brilliance of their of their storytelling and and their visual storytelling and their manipulation of, of image to um, promote myth, to, you know mythic a, a mythic narrative. 
it's it's scary. And I think you know we, we you can't take Boris Johnson seriously. He is a kind of pantomime buffoon. But you know they were they were trying their damnedest to emulate and, and copy that 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 playbook to to kind of uh, establish the uh, the popular base of, of conservatism in, in terms of their assault on Labour's red wall. But I think it looks like it's probably not going to hold. The mortar was a bit thin. And, and there is a playbook, isn't there? But there is a there is a difference, I guess, in terms of how stories are told verbally in politics between, um, say, the stump speeches and the debates and, and what have you, um, and then the written forms of the stories that they tell, say, the, the campaign slogans, manifestos, etc. Um, what 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 are the differences in terms of how they tell those stories? I don't know, Paul. I mean, I. I... Like my like my candidate Stephen, if I don't pretend to have all the answers, um, I, I, I'm pretty much an observer of politics these days. I I, I don't delve deep into the into the in, into the into the minutiae of um, of how they're doing it. I, I, one of the things that impresses me, and, and it's been what's quite interesting on this in this election, has been it's been looking at the um, the gibberish, really, that is, that is the is the common denominator of political discourse, that actually politicians don't know what to write. Um, they kind of know what to say. They know, they kind of know how to distill things into into the simplest possible format. They 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 can um, they they can they they're getting better at the manipulation of image as as a device for storytelling. As a device for implying meaning where there isn't any, but actually, when it comes to filling up blank spaces or blank airtime with words, every political interview I ever hear essentially is meaningless, and every political leaflet I've seen in this election campaign, apart from our own, obviously, it's, it's, it's just nonsense. You know, they they don't expect people to read this. Um, it's just a kind of, they might as well write it in Serbo-Croat. They might as well go back to writing it in Latin. You know, they're, they're, so, they're so far away from having that shared language with the people that they're trying to address. It's like, it's like Babel. They, there isn't, there is no longer um, a, a vocabulary. Uh, there is no longer an emotional language that, um, that, that politicians can, can communicate with, with their voters Except, I think, through these these hugely choreographed, brilliantly conceived um, spectacles that are the sort of the set piece um, components of politics now, where I think, you know, um, the opportunity to to deceive and manipulate on a grand scale is 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 is, is where is where elections are won and lost, and then maybe to to kind of to to, to bring that down to you know Facebook is. You know, massively important. Um, it, it, it is said that the, you know, the, the the campaign, the the Brexit campaign, succeeded simply on the basis of highly personalised, highly tailored, individualised um, messages sent to specific demographics. But these were condensed down to four, five, six, seven words and an image. Um, and and I think politics is now has become a branch of advertising. And you know, you're such and such a guy. Was probably there at that inception. The genealogy of that, which was you know, which was Thatcher's love affair with Sachi and Sachi, the labour isn't working. And I think that you know, at that point, I think politicians realised they were superfluous. They they didn't really need to be anything other than the the, the people who just you know occupied power. Um, 
their, their destiny was, was based on their ability to manipulate uh, and their ability to exploit the media uh, and the emerging new media um, with the, the the most you know the most the most powerful but also the most simplistic consolidated simplified versions of their message and their story. That's that's really interesting um, because all all of the gibberish that you do here. Um, makes it very hard to pay attention to uh, to any of it, doesn't it? So yeah. if, if you're writing a story, John, to make mm. sure that it's not gibberish, what's your approach to, to telling the story? Um, well, we've been, in this campaign, I think the first thing we saw, well, look, let's, let's not look like the opposition, yeah? Let, 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 let's not use the devices that they're using. And we, we have used a bit of social media advertising because we've got a very, you know, compared to the political parties, our campaign is, is, is short on resources, both human resources and financial resources. But I think the two things we've tried to do is one is find, a, is find an idiom for our, our print that looks nothing like um, your glossy political pamphlet. So we've gone back to producing something that looks like looks like um, an accessible uh, newspaper. We've we've tried not to insult the intelligence of our of our readers by by writing in a style that is uh, open, intelligible, and and devoid of, of of obvious spin and manipulation. And, and and that has been about finding you know vocabulary. So as as far as possible. Um, it has been trying to capture the um, the vocabulary, the style, the tone of voice of the candidate. Uh, not when he's being not you know not when he was foolishly or, or, or mistakenly seduced into into behaving like a politician, but from the point of view of somebody who thought this is this can't go on. I, I'm I'm a, I'm a citizen who feels shamed and angry by what's happened in this city. And um, it's got to stop. And everybody I'm talking to in, in the course of my daily life agrees with that. So it was it was attuning, attuning to the ear of the people we were talking to and finding a way to use Stephen's words honestly, authentically and, and consistently um, to, to, to kind of communicate the messages, uh, to communicate his sense of... Uh, and a collective sense of dis disillusionment and anger and outrage about what had been happening in this place, but to do that without lapsing into the kind of the you know the superlatives and the hype of, of political of political jargon. So we you know for this campaign, everything we've done has kind of been pretty unpolished. I think would be the best adjective to use. And we've tried to ensure that, that that is our kind of idiom. That is our sort of style guide. If it sounds like it's, if it sounds contrived, if it sounds polished, if it sounds like it's been written by uh, his spin doctors or his communication advisors, then we are betraying the the essence and the truth of the campaign. Um, it might work. It might not work. We don't know. But I think we didn't have a choice. What we didn't want to do, what we couldn't do was try and, and, and run a campaign that, that looked like, sounded like, emulated, imitated the politics that has clearly failed. That's brilliant. And um, 
I wish you and Stephen good luck in this campaign. Well, we'll either we'll either we'll either, we'll either triumph or it'll 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 end. It'll, it'll be it'll be a sad day for Liverpool because he's by far the the, the best candidate. You know, it, it, when politics fails spectacularly to the point where government inspector uh, essentially declares the entire system broken. Um, they, they move unelected commissioners in to run great swathes of the authorities' um, day-to-day functions because they can't trust in the honesty of the people who, who, who were running it. Well, there have been multiple arrests of, of, of officers of the council and obviously the mayor. I'm not prejudging any of these individuals in terms of their, their, their personal criminal guilt. But, you know, what is on record from the, the investigation is that, that, that clearly the entire authority was under a, a system of, of, you know, what, what was described, I think, as, you know, institutional bullying, um, inaptitude, dysfunctionality. Uh, and, you know, 90 politicians, 90 councillors from different political parties were all part of that either as the administration or the people that were supposed to be there scrutinising it, scrutiny didn't work. So if, if, if we can't break through and, and create space for something different against the backdrop of something that is fundamentally and manifestly broken, then it kind of does make you a little bit depressed and pessimistic about the future of our democracy, really. Makes sense. Um, right, before you go, John, I'd love to ask you a few quick fire questions that we mm. ask uh, everyone who comes on. So um, who do you think of when you hear the word story and why do you think Well, I, 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 I'll tell you, Paul, and you, you might not be surprised to hear it because I think we have a, a certain overlap of, 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 of conviction and faith in this area. But, you know, to, to, to me, the most powerful stories are, 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 the, are the parables of the gospel. This is revolutionary communication. I mean, I don't know whether you, you know, you know, you um, go into kind of biblical, biblical history, biblical criticism, but this was a this was a literary form previously unknown, and it has never been equaled or surpassed. No moral philosopher has been able to frame the basis of human ethics, our responsibilities, and obligations to each other, with such power and such eloquence as the as the parables in 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 the Gospels of Jesus. So, you know, to me. These, these are the, the inspirational stories. These are the kind of directional guidelines that are fundamental to our makeup as, as human beings. And you, uh, you've already mentioned uh, Made to Stick and Age of Anger, but can you recommend any other good books, websites, blogs, podcasts about storytelling? Oh, I can't. I read a lot of fiction. <laughs> I'm immersed in stories. So I think um, I am... Um, I, I don't read books about stories, I read the stories, and that's not because um, um, it, 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 it's because I'm, fast, I'm, I'm sufficiently fascinated by stories to want to keep reading them. Um, again, okay, more, uh, I, you know, the greatest storyteller to me, the, the, the greatest philosopher of the, 20, of the 19th century, but his ideas resonate through the 20th century and the 21st century, the crisis of modernity and everything that goes with it, is Dostoevsky. But his stories aren't, his stories aren't, aren't theorising about philosophy. They are real, gritty, visceral, human reality that, that conveys truth at a level and with a depth and with an intensity that um, you know, philosophers haven't managed. So, 
you know, that's that that's the only book I can I can say. Go and read Dostoevsky. Who knows what's going wrong in the world? What's wrong with the world? Go and read Dostoevsky. Read the devils because it was written in the what 1860s, but it's about today and it's about tomorrow. Brilliant answer. And uh, lastly, John, where can we find out more about you? Nowhere. Nowhere. <laughs> Nowhere. For a communicator, I don't do social media. Um I've got an email address. Um, I, my work at the moment is mainly through two, two, um, two relationships, two business relationships. I'm part of a very small consultancy based in Liverpool that you know about called Outlier, uh, which is a small communications consultancy. I work as an associate with the uh, think tank Respublica, um, really helping them with um, engagement with understanding the kind of communication landscape for projects that they're doing around public policy. So um, no, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know whether by conviction or laziness or ineptitude or technophobia, but I don't have a website. I don't do any form of social media. I'm not even on LinkedIn. It's probably really bad for business, but it enables me to be a little bit picky and choosy about the work I do. I'm not a hired gun. I used to be, but now I prefer to kind of, you know, find the work rather than it find me. That's a great way to be. Well, John, thank, yeah. thank you very much. For and I apologise for the one lapse, but I was kind of paraphrasing other people when I when I when I came out with that F word. So, sorry. Apologies to your readers, listeners, even. Quite all right. Um, well, thank you, John, uh, for your time today. Thank you for sharing. My, my cat is desperate to get into the room, as you can probably hear. <laughs> I think <laughs> Let he's telling me it's tea um, time. Let your cat in and um, we'll say goodbye, John. Thank you. And, um, Peace, Paul. God bless you. Take care. Catch up with you soon. See you soon. God bless. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All the World. Be sure to rate, review and subscribe to the show and visit weareopusmedia.com for more resources based on today's topic, as well as access to more episodes that will help you develop your storytelling abilities. That's weareopusmedia.com. Thank you and see you next time.